Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Norris Tai, an aerospace engineer from UCLA, now CEO and co-founder of Exosonic, who since a young age has been passionate about transporting people around the world faster. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. I'm really happy to have you here, Norris. It's like an amazing startup. It's a really exciting field. I'm excited to talk to you, everything about supersonic travel. And to start, like, how did Exotic <laughs> get started? Yeah, Uh, so I can share with you the personal journey, which is kind of like a 10 year in the making thing, or I can just share with you the very condensed story, which is like went to business school and then started a company because it's been something I've been thinking about for a very long time. <laughs> so I, I have some questions from, from like around the journey. So I think that the, the first one you can just give like a short version first, and then we can like explore all the layers later. So. Yeah, well, thanks, Ed, again, for having me on your podcast. And uh, so, again, my name is Norski, CEO and co-founder of Exosonic, where our vision is to take people to the Exosonic everywhere by meeting the Sonic boom. So, uh, for me, this company has really been a lifelong journey. I've been passionate about fashion travel since childhood, around high school, when I had the idea of, like, well, travel times haven't changed in 60 years, and I don't imagine them. Uh, continuing to be the same for 60 plus years. So why don't I figure out a solution in which to move people around the world faster? Uh, and so that started my, my search, if you will, for a technological solution that I wanted then form into a company uh, when I had the right idea. So that brought me to study youth, uh, aerospace engineering at UCLA, uh, where I focused, of course, on propulsion. And then while in industry, I worked out of several aerospace and defense companies, Northrop Grumman, Virgin Galactic, and, and Lockheed Martin Defense Works, where I worked on vehicles that break the sound barrier, so I could figure out different propulsion technologies to move people faster in the speed of sound. And it was at my last job, Lockheed Martin Defense Works, where I learned about uh, low-boom shaping technique. Uh, and that's when I figured out that... Mm -hmm. this, is, this is interesting, just to... Just before you move along, like when yeah. you were inspired and when you were a child about that, like what mm -hmm. was like the, there's a specific moment or a specific thing that went through your head? Like what did you find so exciting about uh, supersonic travel? I, I think that for a child perspective, it's a, it's an amazing thing anyway. Like you know, it's, <laughs> but, but it's, a, it's a really cool thing to think about. But in your case, what, what was like that inspired you the most or... If do you remember that? Yeah, uh, I think the inspiration was built up over time. Um, it was the multi multiple factors came into play. One, I was exposed to aircraft through just pamphlets growing up uh, from you know from pamphlets that my my parents brought back home to me when I was younger. Uh, in addition to my frustrations of long travel times, right, just flying over to Asia to visit relatives and. Per perhaps you two Ed has had these frustrations when flying to the United States from Brazil which could be long. Um, and then coming to an age in which I had this kind of personal passion for aerospace already, paired with this frustration of long travel times. And then uh, this one article I read really put things together. Uh, and 
Of all things, it was about birth order of children. And I have an older sister. Uh, and being the second child, I'm supposed to be more of a risk taker, more of an entrepreneur. And I asked myself, what can I do uh, to be entrepreneurial? And then I thought, well, there's this problem that I face, which is long travel time. It doesn't seem like anyone's doing anything about it. Why don't I try to figure it out? And I already love aerospace, so this is something that you know, I would enjoy tackling. And uh, since then, it's been uh, it's been really fun. It's been challenging, of course, uh, both the technical and the business side of things. But it's been a really rewarding experience. You know, up, obviously up to this point, and I imagine continuing forward. Yeah, and and what's the the solution that you guys are proposing? Like, what's different from what mm -hmm. you guys are doing, and and how it works? Like, not of course, uh, high level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. Well, in industry, I looked at a number of solutions, right? Uh, hypersonic travel, uh, rocket-based transportation, and then, of course, supersonic. Uh, and my industry exploration was to really figure out the maturity of these uh, technologies in addition to the performance. Now, uh, from my perspective on hypersonic, it's still pretty pretty new technology that isn't ready for commercialization. Yet. So it'll be a couple of decades, I think, before we get hypersonic commercial travel, if, if it's even feasible. Just, can you just explain really quickly the difference between hypersonic and supersonic? Yes, yes, of course. So uh, supersonic is, of course, faster than the speed of sound or faster than Mach 1. Uh, and when you start going to hypersonic, it becomes into a... It, it, you're going so fast that the... like. When these air molecules are hitting the surface of the vehicle, they're starting to dissociate. Uh, and the molecules are breaking down into elements because it's just so hot. Um, and, and that really changes this, the, the physics of the airflow around the vehicle. And it can start to uh, bring in other, you know, thermodynamic and chemically reacting uh, elements that add to the physics to make it a lot more complicated. So that's kind of what hypersonic means is like when you start going yeah. so fast that you're breaking down molecules yeah it's so fast and so hot that you break down the molecules around the the aircraft it's really interesting really extreme though yeah pretty cool <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so certainly really challenging um yeah so that's hypersonic uh I, I looked a little bit at rocket travel uh specifically with you know virgin galactic uh, spaceship 2 platform Of course, nowadays, SpaceX is offering, you know, their uh, Starship solution for, uh, you know, basically suborbital travel. I have some thoughts about that. I think there's there's some, it'll take some more steps to get there. Uh, yeah. Whereas in supersonic commercial aviation, right, it's been done before and it's been proven that, like, it, it can actually operate at airports, can integrate into the air, uh, you know, the the national airspace uh there are some of course more modern day complications such as just uh, more stringent noise uh some other airport logistical challenges of course the environment is has and continues to be a problem uh, but the great thing is that there are some solutions uh going forward for that so supersonics is this great mix of one it's already a very understood technology it's already been in commercial service with the Comfort. And the thing that uh, we think has really changed is the ability to mute the sonic boom. Uh, and this has been, this is technology that's been matured by NASA and others uh, for the past couple of decades and is culminating into a research vehicle called X-59, uh, which I used to work on. And the whole purpose of that vehicle is to uh, fly over communities in the United States, uh, boom them, and then uh, 
gather community research data uh, where the responses will, you know, help FAA and NASA determine if that quieter sonic boom is indeed a nuisance to the public. And then, oh. uh, you know, perhaps change regulations. And, and you guys are making like the whole aircraft or thinking about just an engine or, or what's like, what exactly you guys are, are building? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. This is a, a very common question. It's like, oh, wow. It seems like building an aircraft is really hard. Wouldn't you want to just focus on a component? Uh, but the thing is, there's there's really not much point in focusing on a singular component, right? Uh, in this larger solution. And especially in supersonic aircraft design, the engine is so closely coupled with the aircraft design that there's little point in developing an engine without an airframe. Uh, so to really solve this problem, you need to develop the airframe. And you can go find an engine manufacturer out there that has developed engines for supersonic flight because obviously, you know, the United States and many other countries have been flying supersonic fighters for 60 plus years. And that again is a known technology. But developing an airframe that one can meet the sonic boom, you know, limit its its uh, environmental impact and thoroughly make commercial profits for, for the airline customers, uh, that is the challenge. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the problem of the sonic boom. This would be a problem on the start of the flight in the airport, or this sound would be like all over the travel of the, the aircraft? Yeah, so there's certainly some uh, some challenges as you're going from takeoff uh, to your supersonic cruise speed. So we're targeting around Mach 1.8, which is two and a half times faster than aircraft today. And so those will be challenges that we have to face and we'll work with regulators and you know, the communities to make sure that it's not a nuisance. But when you're cruising at, you know, Mach 1.8, then um, the, the boom would be softened and it should be fine. But the thing is, I think to address your direct question is this, this quieter sonic boom will follow you across the entire journey while you're at that speed. Yeah. So it's not just a one-time event. Yeah. It's makes it really important to make it soft and yeah. It's, it's a critical issue because mm -hmm. otherwise you're going to have a lot of problems with regulators <laughs> and people overall and <laughs> people right. going to complain a lot. So this, what yeah. could you explain in simple terms of what is different about the, the, the new technology to make it quieter than you used before? Like what, what's the principle of that? Yeah. So uh, there's been a lot of research and development to one, understanding if you can indeed shape a sonic boom in the first place and that was proven uh, in the early 2000s uh, by you know DARPA NASA and the growth of Grumman uh, with this vehicle called the Shape Sonic Boom Demonstrator and then uh, later on there's been a lot of research to demonstrate that you know uh, basically what, what they did in the past was like they shaped to shape the sonic boom they, they shaped the nose of the vehicle uh, to you know to a certain uh, configuration or, or, or shape that uh, is designed to distribute the shock waves that come off of a vehicle just kind of naturally um, into a specific pattern that then uh, can soften the sonic boom. And the way that they try to do that is distribute these shock waves that come off the vehicle such that they're far enough apart that when they come down towards the earth, they create perhaps a, a, a series of weaker uh, and softer booms over a longer period of time versus this one instantaneous like thunderclap that you typically hear. Yeah, and so, I see. Yeah, a character, uh, a common characteristic of these vehicles is that they just have very long noses. Um, yeah, and that's that's one simple way to put it, but there's certainly other aspects of the aircraft design 
that help mitigate the sonic boom loudness. And, and besides the fact that we can we can make it uh, less noisier now, why do you think that now it's like a, a good time for supersonic travel? So I think honestly, I think that is that one of the biggest pieces, right? That that allow it. Because oh, one thing I I. I I keep thinking about when we're talking about like faster speed of travel. It's not exactly mm -hmm. like why now. It's like why not before. Like why <laughs> why take why take you guys yeah. so long? Your aerospatial yeah. engineers to figure this out. Like we want to travel faster. Like why? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and this is really why I think this quiet sonic boom technology provides the why now answer, right? Because yeah. the problem with the Concorde was that it had a loud sonic boom and therefore could not fly supersonic over land. In fact, the Concorde had over 100 orders from airlines across the world. Uh, and when the United States banned supersonic overland flight in like 1976, oh. yeah, then, then all these orders were canceled and, and no one... Oh, I didn't know that. So the Concorde yeah. was not able to fly over land so it was just overseas over it was only and, and that's the same thing you know like our competitor boom like yeah. that's what they're doing they're they're keeping the boom as the name implies and yeah. uh, they're they're not trying to solve it and so what they're essentially doing is you know repeating the mistakes of the concord right now this would limit it a, a lot like because if, if you have like big countries like brazil united states china you, even yeah. Europe, like you need to do yeah. a lot of traveling inland, like otherwise you need right. to like LA to New York or let's say Sao Paulo yeah. to Miami. You, know, you need to pass to, to land a little bit anyway, most of right. the time, right? Oh, got right. it. Yeah, I, did, I didn't know that about the Concorde. For mm -hmm. for the people I, that are listening, could you explain a little bit about the Concorde? Just the story of the supersonic travel a little bit? Yeah, yeah, certainly so. So. Uh, the, the Concorde was developed in the 1960s by the British and French, uh, government and, uh, certainly a, a very, a very awesome and just inspiring aircraft even today, you know, and, and only shortly, uh, like in the 1950s, they broke the sound barrier and then to go, uh, develop a commercial transport that goes supersonic is it, just really impressive, uh, especially at that time. Uh, so the aircraft uh, eventually went into commercial service in the early to mid, uh, 70s. Uh, it was only operated by the British and French airlines uh, because those governments paid for the aircraft. And as I mentioned, uh, it had 100 plus orders, but all of them were canceled because the United States banned supersonic overland flight due to the disruptive this disruptive nature of sonic booms community. Um, you can even read about this Oklahoma City uh, boom testing that they did in the past to understand um, how disruptive it was. They, they flew supersonic fighters over a community for six months, eight times a day, and it just like was just drove people yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know about that. I think many people did, didn't know about that either. Like this was a big sound problem, and because mm -hmm. when you think about that, did like in the '60s and the '70s with the Concorde, you would you would expecting that that now things would be more advanced than in the past, and then you learn that like decades ago we used to have supersonic travel, and now we don't, which is strange thing to to, to think about, right? That mm -hmm. like we had like more advanced travel in the past than we have in the present. It's kind of freaked me out a little bit when I think about it. So, but. Makes yeah. sense that if, if the boom it's such a problem that you would not be able to scale it as much as we would like to, most likely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the Concorde flew basically two routes. It flew to uh, London from New York or to Paris from New York. I mean, they had some other charter flights and stuff, but I mean, for regular commercial service, it was, it was really those two routes. And, and you guys are thinking about like, regarding like your go-to-market uh, strategy, would you guys think about like selling it to airlines, someday operate your own airline? How it would be like the, the model? Yeah, so I mean, manufacturing airplanes versus operating airplanes are like two wholly different businesses. I mean, the airline industry is extremely cutthroat. And it's very thin margins, despite how valuable of a, a service they provide to to really the world. Um, uh, but either way, it's it's not a what our model is to sell aircraft to airlines, uh, and that's typically what what all those aircraft manufacturers do. It's just a really different business to do an airline and an aircraft manufacturing. Yeah, something okay. like Boeing or or those guys do like right. So even Boeing doesn't operate an airline no that's just selling the aircraft right oh like, right they do yeah 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 makes more sense complete completely yeah. different business making the aircraft and operating the airlines and going after both would be it's really mm-hmm. hard so mm-hmm. what do you think that you have a pretty impressive resume let's say and why would you take the risk to starting a new company instead of just like joining a big company or something like that like, Why take this risk? Why did you chose that? Yeah, well, I did. I did join a big company, <laughs> and then when I joined them, I asked them. You know, it was funny because I was talking to uh, one of the. I think he was a director of VP at the time, and I told him like, "Hey, what would it take for me to run a program? Like, you know, if I wanted to, you know, start." A commercial supersonic airliner division in the company. How do I do that? And the thing was like, oh, first you have to be like 35. And I was like 26 at the time. I was like, well, I'm not going to wait until I'm 35 to do that. And like, I have to jump all these hoops and then get, you know, corporate buy-in and all this other stuff. It's just like, you know, there's just there's simply no way to, for me personally, to do what I wanted to do uh, within a larger corporate structure. Now I could join another startup, right? But then other, there weren't that many startups at the time that I had the idea. And still to this day, right? It's just a really challenging uh, space to be in. Uh, but I mean, there was like just only Boom and Arion, which is no longer you know, solvent, unfortunately. But I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't uh, compelled by the mission, especially with Boom, in the sense that like they weren't trying to move the sonic boom, right? They were just going to repeat the mistakes of the Concord in my, in my perspective. Yeah, and, and have you? Uh, was there ever a time when you wanted to to quit? Quit? Yeah. Quit what? I quit a lot with of the, times with the company. <laughs> which, which company? I so for example, one year I was at three different companies, so I, I certainly quit a number of companies. Uh, then you guys joined YC, right? So what what was your experience uh, at YC? Mm-hmm. Yeah, YC was was really great. I mean, great workshops. I really liked the small group that we had. Uh, I'm still in touch with some of the folks that we met at, at YC uh, to this day, and honestly, the network has been really valuable, whether they be alumni or of course the investor network is, is really great. Um, and they've helped with a number of things like just learning how to talk to the press, right? Or like how to talk to investors, um, how to like go recruit people, right? Especially with an emphasis on diversity. Um, and yeah, they continue to be an awesome resource for us. Demo day was pretty crazy um, as, you may recall uh, our demo day batch was 
uh, March of 2020. So when you were, you know, when your flight to the United States was canceled due to the pandemic, our demo day was being dramatically shifted um, within the span of like days where yeah. it was going to be an in-person event. And they're like, no, it's not going to be in person and we're going to move it up in a week. And we're also just going to do like basically a one slider and we're going to have all the investors look at your stuff because we just don't know if investors will even have cash for the next week. Yeah. Um, so it was a very a really, scary. really scary time, right? In the time it was like right. a lot of uncertainty happening. Right. Like. <laughs> and Sequoia came out with a black swan letter, right? And then yeah. I was yeah. like freaking out and yeah. But, but yeah. now, I mean, now for whatever reason, the the capital markets have been flooded for the past couple of months. Yeah, it was yeah. hard like to raise for you guys. Like, what was the 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 overall uh, investment environment for like deep tech, in particular for like aviation tech, like you guys? Yeah, I, I mean, frankly, it was difficult, right? I mean, yeah. who wants to invest in a you know a, a long term capital intensive startup at that time? Like. You know, if, if invest in anything at all, because a lot of people were focused on making sure the portfolio companies didn't go under. Um, and certainly, it didn't seem like that many portfolio companies did go under, which is great. Uh, at least not as many as it, as it was expected. Uh, but for us, one lucky break that we we caught was uh, we we got in touch with some people at the Air Force, and um, they were able to provide a contract uh, to develop an executive transport version of our supersonic airliner to transport top US leaders around the world. And so we got that million dollar contract in in roughly the fall of 2020. And that really set us up on the map for the supersonic transport space. And we were able to grow uh, despite the difficult time. Um, and that has really propelled us in a number of ways. And lately, we've also shifted our strategy uh, quite tremendously, uh, where we are developing a shorter-term product uh, that can get to the market sooner and and meet venture timeline. Yeah, and this is this is the thing that I'm really interested in because we're talking here about a really long-term project, like compared to most like startups, like or SaaS company or app, where you can have right. something there and generate revenue relatively quickly. So, how mm -hmm. do you guys manage like the let's say the expectations of investors and also like your timeline? What timeline are you talking about, and what are the early victories that you can show as traction instead of revenue? Yeah, so I, I unfortunately will not talk too much. Uh, publicly about our our short-term strategy right now. It's something that we'll disclose over time, but just unfortunately not right now. Um, but we're pretty excited about what it is. Um, and, and we already have traction for it from a number of, of sources. So we're pretty confident about this strategy. But to answer your question more broadly, um, when we talked to investors, you know, um, in 2020, a lot of the feedback that we received was, you know, you got to bring the timeline in or you got to you got to sh somehow show progress, show traction, show that you're, you know, like that this is going to come to market. Um, and we didn't want to really compromise on selling basically a go to market plan for our supersonic LLA that was unrealistic. Like we understand the timelines to develop a commercially certified airplane. And some of our competitors have really advertised like crazy timelines in which they can bring an aircraft to market. And repeatedly, they've slipped their timeline. And and for whatever reason, they're able to still fundraise, which I don't understand. But, you know, that what? is the miracle of, 
what, <laughs> what type of timeline are, are realistic? Like, do you think it's frankly? I mean, look, like ten years, twenty, like ten to fifteen years, yeah. right? And I mean, it's it's because of regulations, and it's not a bad thing. It's it's a good thing in some ways, right? Because if if someone were to bring an aircraft to market, put passengers on it, and the first hundred flights, there's one that goes down. Yeah. This entire industry is going to crumble. Like there will just be no trust. I mean, look at how how impactful this, you know, the the Max issue was for the industry, right? And it, it really, you know, hurt Boeing, right? To the point where they were spending billions of dollars to pay airlines for, you know, for lost lost revenue because their Max airplanes was out um and boeing like the 737 max is uh, a subsonic airplane right and supersonic is is more challenging so there are reasons in which or, or in which why these regulations take some time because they just the yeah. faa has no tolerance for for loss right yeah, yeah yeah do you think that we have more patient capital now that for this type of uh, of of endeavor or still the same as it used to be when you started? Um, I don't know necessarily if there's more patience per se, um, but I think there's a lot more interest in deep tech in general. And even like commercial and government, you know, this quote unquote dual use uh, fund out there. Um, I think we're at an inflection point where these these types of VC firms are growing. And now, uh, but you know, hopefully there's there's traction from the LP side to provide these VCs uh, the resources to provide powder to go after these startups. What what you were doing? It's kind of it's uncommon, I would say, even unique. Even though there's some startups doing something mm -hmm. similar, it's just a handful of them. Like, what is the thing that's most misunderstood about you guys? Like when you talk with people outside the industry or investors or the press, what's the thing that everybody seems to get wrong most often? I I, I honestly just think um, there's just a lot of education that goes into it. So it's not necessarily that they're wrong. It's just, you know, they're just not really aware of, of the past and, you know, how the past is influencing, at the very least, exosonic's approach to faster transportation. Um, and so there's a lot of us going out there to just talk about what has happened um, and why now is different and um, how we see yes there are challenges of course going forward but but they're they're solvable and and i think that's that's all part of the education so there's not necessarily anything that's getting wrong it's just um you know bringing more awareness to them about what's going on yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think i think it's most people simply don't even know that people are actually trying to do this in real life and bring this to real life right now. It's most people, mm -hmm. or the guys that don't know that it's like we're getting close and 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 bring this to reality. It's pretty exciting, though. It's pretty exciting to see that we're coming to have people actively working on, on this for real. And uh, is there any advice you would give to someone thinking of starting a deep tech startup? Yeah, I think um, because I guess it depends on which space. Since AI ML is technically deep tech, um, there's just different sets of challenges for that versus uh, an aerospace startup. Uh, but I would say if you're like an aerospace or more capital intensive, you know, long term uh, type of company, uh, I think it's really important to show near term progress and, and be creative in generating ways in which you can make revenue uh, early on. Um, and some of our inspiration has been other, you know, phenomenal companies like, I mean, I just got to say SpaceX, right? Yeah. I mean, 
there are startups out there that are raising hundreds of millions of dollars of capital to build to build rockets, right? And and SpaceX did their first rocket for I believe four hundred million dollars, and they tried like four times, maybe yeah. maybe a little bit more, but from what、yes. I found publicly, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's incredible, right? And and then from there,、uh, they were able to get you know. NASA, a NASA contract that led to the development of Falcon Nine, which then Falcon Nine, of course, developed、uh, into this this whole suite of rockets that have really upended the launch industry. And so, similarly on our end, we are thinking of breaking down our larger vision into smaller bite-sized pieces where we can make money and not like actual develop products that can help us develop our our. our And goal airliner,、uh, and it's it's hard to do that. Like it took us a couple months to really figure out that shorter term strategy. But once we landed on it, we we got a lot more traction from government, from investors,、uh, and from many other stakeholders because、uh, it was it was a unique strategy in this space. Yeah, it's 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 harder to do, but definitely it seems to me that is like a smarter approach. Even though it's it's you need to put more more thought. Strategic thought、yeah. to make it work. Like it's not like it's,、mm-hmm. it's not you can just break the,、uh, a big problem in pieces easily like that. But it's if you can, you have like a real interesting path to 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 growth and realizing your final destination. It's an amazing idea. Yeah. And、mm-hmm. what's your routine like nowadays with the company and everything that's going on? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, my routine、uh, really varies day to day.、Um, sometimes it's like I, I try to bucket my my work in terms of the work divide between my co-founder, who's the CTO, and myself. As I do some of this, a lot, you know, the strategy work, of course, in partnership with him. But my main responsibilities are, of course, fundraising, you know, to making sure I keep、uh, investors updated and get more investors.、Uh, secondly, it's、um, you know business development, right, where I go find. New veins of business for our company, and then try to you know secure commercial and/or government interest.、Um, and parts of my role is, of course, recruiting as well, where I try to find people for business development, advisors,、um, or other mentors, and a little bit on the technical side because、uh, I, I still have a, a decent network within the aerospace engineering world. It's a pretty small world, and doing a little bit of supplier stuff. So、um, that's how my day varies. And it's all usually bucketed into those different categories, and day to day, like switching between those responsibilities. Yeah. And and what skills do you have that you find that's like the most valuable as a as a founder? <laughs> I I,、um, I think there's a lot to say about not giving up and not losing optimism.、Um, I think in a and this is not necessarily a skill per se, maybe more of a characteristic, but I think. The skills that those traits help、uh, develop is just,、um, I mean, just just really being. You just have to be really creative, and there's no real answer for that. But I don't know.、Um, I, I I think like outside of those things, it's really like you you can you can do it. Like I don't I don't feel like I'm particularly special, right? I I was a kid that had a deep passion for something and explored it for for a long time and really learned about that. Now, yeah, perhaps like you know, because I had some inclination towards math and science when I was growing up,、uh, that led me to study engineering.、Uh, that helped, and then going to business school taught me some skills. But I felt like a lot of the things I learned was just like going to do those things, right? Like I wasn't good at talking to people 
when I started undergrad, especially talking to professionals or talking to people older than me. Um, but it's like something I worked on for a very long time. Like I had some really awkward conversations at like these quote unquote professional, professional dinner parties at school with people. But I, I started to hone in on what worked for me and worked for people. Right. So, um, of course, when you develop a startup, there's a lot of skills that you learn over time. But again, these are all things that are learnable. There's no like inherent trait that makes someone particularly special. Um, but so long as someone has perseverance and a very high supply of optimism and willingness to learn, I, I think I think anyone can do it. Like if you have a dream, I would say just go pursue it as, as cliche as, as it is. And it's not going to be easy, but that's something that you'll just have to accept. And that's where that optimism comes in and that self-confidence, self-belief comes in. And I think that's just so important. And it's not unique to anyone. Everyone has that. Yeah, I, I think that particularly if we're going to dream big or try to do something that is really hard, like what you are doing and what most deep tech startups are doing. I think optimism and openness, it's really important because you go, you, you are fighting a really hard problem and thinking long term. So if you're not optimist, <laughs> you're, you're going to have a lot of problems in the short term. Um, yeah. So, like there's enough uh, people saying no to you already that you don't need to do yeah. this yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. True. And, and like there is... One thing that I always like to, to ask my guests, like there's this famous interview quote about like, we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters that he got in, the, the, in his book. And I always think that, do you believe that technological progress is slowing down? That we are not like, that we are slower now than we used to be in developing new things and, and evolving technology? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, we, it, You know, we are, in a sense, getting flying cars now. But yes, we have the Twitters of the world and the iPhones of the world, you know, start start first. Um, but I think right now, like aerospace is seeing a renaissance. Like we're getting a lot of activity in the space, right? We're getting electric airplanes. We're getting, as you said, EV tolls or these flying cars. There's supersonics. Now there's even hypersonics. There's a bunch of rocket companies out there. Virgin Orbit just launched like a few, like yesterday, I think, and then Virgin Galactic and, you know, Blue Origin are going to send Bezos and Branson to space in like a few weeks. Like there's just a lot of activity in the aerospace world and it's taken some time. Um, but, you know, in some ways, all that tech money, all that Twitter, Amazon, eBay, PayPal money is now funding all, all this aerospace stuff, yeah, right? This is and and really it's leading yeah. to this renaissance. So those 400 characters bought the flying car in some way. Yeah, yeah, in some way, yeah. yeah. A, lot of, a lot of the the money from early internet, like it's, it's going to a lot of deep tech endeavors when you think about it. Even like Elon Musk and Tesla and SpaceX, and you think about uh, Arno, with like the brain computer interfaces was like the guy from brain tree who sold it and then get the money to put in that so you see a lot of this being being mm -hmm. uh being uh, flowing this money instead of just spending in, in mm -hmm. other things like and this is this is i think this is a net positive thing for society when we ha you have uh a lot of geeks and nerds with a lot of money 
what they what they're gonna do with their money <laughs> they're gonna do what they're gonna build more more stuff or more crazy stuff or yeah. more risk stuff so it's like it's interesting yeah. to see and there's <laughs> any any trends like in deep tech you like to follow like you're following or like keeping tabs with? uh you know i've i've been always really passionate about space and i was always hoping that we would do something in space and then i found out about aviation uh, obviously i love aviation too uh, but i i follow the space industry quite closely i, I follow a few news outlets regularly uh, and and I, that's like one place i like to to keep my tabs on there's just so much growth it's just hard to keep track of what's going on though and what other startups do you admire i mean i think uh i've, I've gotten to talk to a few Uh, and I'll just say like one in the in the aerospace world, um, I think Ampere, and where they're developing like a hyperelectric airplane. Uh, a guy I talked to the founder like this, just a few times, and you know it's just a it's just a slot, you know. And one can make a lot of technical progress and still not get the traction that one would expect that would be commensurate to that technical progress. Um, but I, I'm I'm really happy that uh, he. You know, he was able to uh, actually have that company be acquired, and and then get more resources to continue, uh, you know, his passion and of course the company's passion. Uh, so that's certainly one company I, I really admire. Yeah, and one founder I really admire. And what are some of your favorite books? The books you would recommend? I maybe you're expecting like some like startup book or something like that, but I'm not. No, 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 no. That no, no. any. Any any books? I'm talking okay. about your favorite favorite pop. <laughs> okay, I I absolutely love uh, the Three Body Problem trilogy. Um, I, I think it's it's become famous because uh, President Obama read the book during his White House days, and from what I read, and I think in this interview, it was he read to escape the politics and the frustrations of of just DC life and politics. Um, regardless, though, it's it's a fascinating hard science sci-fi book. Uh, it certainly had a number of notoriety uh, being, I think he's like the first Chinese author or something to win the Hugo Award. Uh, uh, it's, there's an English translation and it's it's phenomenally... Yeah, it was the first translated book to, to win the, the, the Hugo Award. I think all the other ones were originally written in English. I read the three and they are amazing. Yes, I think. Like, it was one of the mm-hmm. best sci-fi books that I have read in a long, long time. It's really well written really really well written like it's uh, it's, it's amazing like inside the the, the, uh, the three body problem yeah the, the trilogy i like the three oh, okay oh yeah. the three yeah the three are amazing like i was really surprised by the the how smart and how many threads and sub threads and topics there are there it's really hard to explain to people what it is about actually about yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. yeah, you read the book though. It sounds like you read the the trilogy here. Yeah, yeah, I read the trilogy. The three. Yeah. Ah, yeah. how did you hear about it? Because of the Obama interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah. I am a really big fan of sci-fi though. But I, I say, what's what? Yeah. So Obama is Obama is recommending a sci-fi book. I need to check that. Like, <laughs> yeah. What is your top favorite book, or maybe just in sci-fi for this topic period? Oh, hard to th- to think. I think that I would put together with uh, the three body problem. I would put together the the Asimov Foundation series, which is pretty great as well. Like it's, uh, it's a classic. Yeah. It was a big introduction for me. I think that mm-hmm. uh, 
besides that, I don't know. I like the the I like a lot of um, uh, short stories, like um, mm -hmm. the story of you and other stories. It's pretty good because there is the the short story for that created the that movie, the Arrival movie. Have you seen it? Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that one was based on a short story called uh, mm -hmm. I think it's the, the All the History of You and it's an amazing short story and all the short stories in the book are, are great. I think that the the guy who wrote this it's somehow involved in with the translation I think of the three body problem That's how I discovered it. I think oh, so but oh, I'm not Okay. I think it was like okay. I think that the three body problem is Ted Chiang and 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 this mm -hmm. Guides, I remember them. I don't remember the name, but it's like uh, there is this history of you and other stories. I think that, that there is like exhalation and other stories. And I like these like short, uh, short stories because people can uh, explore a little bit more in the short stories about the future. You know, this is what I'm really mm -hmm. into right now, like getting to to know. And and if you had the chance to send just one message every human being on earth what would it be um i think it's to really listen to others or you know in a sense be open-minded but uh, you know those, those two come together like i think um you know we all we all obviously listen we all hear things uh but there's another part where it's kind of like you know you're actively listening and trying to really understand where that person comes from where it's coming from and i think that's you know it's just really hard to do you know because I think like me, I, I just focus a lot on myself and where I'm coming from usually because it's like the very natural thing to do. And it's just one other step to, to really think about what the other is experiencing and why that person is saying or coming from where that person is coming from. Well, it was amazing to have you on this, this podcast. I hope that since it's like a 10-year journey, we're going to have like follow-up podcast in the future to, to talk more about how Exosonic is revolutionizing traveling so it's it's really great to talk to you and i'm really happy with, with this this conversation thank you yeah thanks again ed for the opportunity um and i i look forward to you know continuing to watch your podcast grow and uh, of course we would love to stay engaged uh to have another yeah. opportunity if you so would like to Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.